0: The message in title is, What About the Devil's Attacks? He is the God of this world, the Prince of the Power of the as we said this morning. And uh, the many other titles that he bears, they all have to do with his deception, his destruction, and his uh, canny ability to deceive fallen man. An infidel died and he left his farm to the devil. The courts, after deliberation, thought it was a ridiculous a uh, set of circumstances, but they decided the best way to carry out the um, wishes of the infidel was to permit the farmland to grow and let weeds and briars just consume it. Unattended, it rotted, and good soil eroded. And the um, court said, quote, The best way to let Satan have it is to do nothing. Wow. What a powerful truth to those who do nothing about their spiritual salvation and think they won't end up in hell. All you have to do is do nothing to end up in hell. But to end up in heaven, you have to do something. You have to repent. You have to consider the good news of the gospel. The Bible teaches men and women are either children of God or children of the devil. In this, First John 3.10 says, The children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. To remain in a fallen state, you have to do nothing. Jesus said, The devil is a liar, the father of lies, and a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. In the Gospel of John Chapter 8, verse 44. After the fall of Adam and Eve, as you know, God said to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 3.15. From the beginning, as I said this morning, God tells you the outcome. God wins. A Temporary wound on the heel of Jesus at the cross and a permanent deadly wound to the head of Satan. We are told, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. 1 Chronicles 21.1 We talked about the pride, the king of Tyre. And how there's a double analogy there of the king and a very direct address to the fall of Satan. Pride. Zechariah tells us, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. In this, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. We'll be there shortly, in a few months. God wants to work, and God is the one who deals with all the obstacles. And he equips us, he enables us. And as we obey him, as we yield to him, it doesn't mean that there's no opposition. Doesn't mean that there's no suffering. Doesn't mean that things come easy. If it was easy, we wouldn't need instructions. If he wasn't so clever, he wouldn't have to be unmasked by God. And so, I want to see how God uh, reveals Satan here in the scriptures regarding his attacks by looking at three things. First, the devil and his Three conversations we have in Scripture. Second, the devil and his threefold attack. And then we'll finish up thirdly with the devil and and the three keys to spiritual warfare. Let's begin with the devil and his three conversations. There are only three places in the Scriptures where we have the actual conversation of Satan and they teach us some very, very important things. The first conversation is found in the book of Genesis, when Satan slanders God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. If you turn there, we'll follow through the text. In Genesis 3, 1, he slanders God to man by questioning God's word to stir up doubt. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? real simple. That's why you need to know God's word. But even if you know God's word, he's going to twist God's word. He's going to put a slant on God. So you've got to make sure you study in context and know exactly what he's talking about. He slanders God to man by saying God lies to bring about this mistrust. You will not surely die in verse 4 of chapter 3. God's just trying to scare you, intimidate you, kind of just... He lies. He slanders God, to man, by stating that God is trying to keep us from what is good and beneficial for us to cause us to rebel and disobey. As parents, we understand this. You're trying to help your son, your daughter. You're directing, guiding them. They're going through a difficult time. They're teens or wherever they may be. and, And they think that you're just trying to make their life miserable. But you've been around the block a couple of times on your faces, a couple of times on your back. So you know what you're talking about. So we understand this whole scenario. Genesis 3, 5 says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you're smarter than God. Our children tell us, I'm smarter than my mom and dad. They don't know what they're talking about. The parallel is candy, you can't miss it. Some believe that the rebellion in heaven by Lucifer took place between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 using two passages. They're wrong, but let me walk you through them. The first passage is Isaiah 45:18. It says, For thus saith the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited? I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah 45:18. So they're saying that Isaiah 45:18 is a commentary back to the creation. There, the other one is found in Jeremiah 4:23 through 27, where it says, "And I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void; and the heavens, they had no light." By the way, form and uh, without form and void—the same exact words as Genesis verse 2 there. Is the heaven had no light, I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds in the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the, fruit, uh, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord Yahweh by his fierce anger. For thus saith the Lord Yahweh, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. Jeremiah four. 23 through 27 now some use what is called the gap theory between verse 1 and 2 teaching that there is a creation in the initial creation in verse 1 of Genesis 1 a destruction in verse 2 and then a recreation and they want to stick their dinosaurs in there and they call it the gap theory the only gap is between their teeth um Because, first of all, the creation account in Genesis, chapter 1, is the condition prior to the chronological process of God's creation. There is nothing in the text to reveal a destruction, yet some would translate the word was, became, It doesn't go. That's number one. Inductive Bible study, you make observations. You only take what's out there. If you go into your kitchen drawer and there's only forks, you don't pull a fork out and say it's a spoon. Okay? It's real simple. Second, Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 23 through 27 is prophesying about Israel's future judgment. And devastation. Context, context, context. Third, though prophecies do have a twofold fulfillment at times, as we've seen often, they do so in a short term and long term look going forward. Never does prophecy look backward. Duh. Alright? So it's very important. And yet people get PhDs for this type of nonsense. It's amazing. I think they got it about a Cracker Jack box. Do they still sell those things? We used to get a price. Now, Jeremiah speaking about the events of the day of the Lord in chapter, uh, and, 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 um, that it burns up with fire. Peter confirms this in 2 Peter 3.10. All will melt with fervent heat. What manner of people are we to be? Now, that doesn't take place after the thousand-year reign. So, Jeremiah's looking forward to the destruction in the future. Never does the text and prophecy look backward. That's not prophecy. And the context is very important. Fourthly, the most authoritative. The Bible teacher that, that, that teaches that death did not exist because the Bible is a full authority. And in Romans chapter 5, Verse 12, it says, And death entered in by one man, and death through sin. So death passed to all men. Romans 5.12 is the nail that puts a coffin in this theory of the gap theory. Romans 5.12 says, No one, nothing ever died before Adam. Death did not exist prior to Adam. The New Testament is a greater commentary over the Old Testament. The new is concealed in the old, and the old is revealed by the new. The new is always a commentary on the old. Real simple, okay? Simple principles so you don't get into this, oh, wow, that's heavy. Boy, that is neat. And people get carried away with this bubblegum theology. And um, people just toss scriptures around and stack them, and they don't look at the context and whether it's prophecy, whether it's this, whether it's that, and they put it all together. Now, so the first division there in Genesis, the conversation in Genesis, okay? I bring that gap theory because it's important, because God says nothing at all about it there, and that's important. Now, the second conversation is found in the book of Job, where Satan slanders man to God. In the first one, he slanders God to man. Now it's just the reverse. In Job chapter 1 and 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 through 12, um, he slanders Job before God saying that he was faithful only because God had protected him with a hedge around him and his household prospered. So Satan answered God and said in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Verse 10, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand and his possessions have increased in the land. This is the philosophy of Satan before the throne of God. These guys are just hired; They serve you because you bless them. Take everything from them. Let's see what they do. Wow. Kind of a tough question, isn't it? Verse 11 says, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. This is Satan telling God. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, verse 12. As we said this morning, he needed permission. God is the one who set the boundaries. By the way, the one who solicited the testing was God, to Satan, not the reverse. Very important. Job maintained his integrity. In chapter 1, there are verse 21 and 22. In 21, he said, naked I came in from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord Yahweh gave, and the Lord Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Joe's an incredible guy. Now he said some things that he got chastened for, but um, he is the one who ends up interceding for his three miserable friends and physicians of no value. Okay? Okay. Um, In verse 22, he says, And in all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. And so here, Satan always appeals to our senses, to the things we have. He attacks us that way. He slandered Job before God a second time, saying that if Job's health was removed now, he would really... Curse him in chapter two, verse four through six. And verse four it says, So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, and all that a man has, he will give for his life. Some of you may be old enough to remember Jack Benny. One of his lines, a guy comes up to him and he says, Your money or your life? And he's silent for a long time. He goes, Well, he says, I'm thinking about it. Money, your life. I don't care how much money you have. When someone says it's going to kill you, your money's not going to do any any good. You'll give them anything. You may hate it after he lets you go, but, but your life is worth a lot more to you. Verse 5, it says, But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face listen to God's response and the Lord Yahweh said to Satan behold he is in your hand but spare his life once again Job maintained his integrity in chapter 2 verse 7 through 8 listen to him so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord Yahweh and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head verse 7 says Verse 8, and he took for himself a potsherd piece of pottery with which he scraped himself while he sat in the midst of ashes, all humiliated and just broken. Verse 9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. I'd like to be married to a woman like that. Now could be that he was so miserable and so much suffering that this was really a declaration of her love for her husband because she didn't want to see him like that. And when we're seeing our loved ones in pain and suffering, we say some dumb things. When we do, do you think God says, huh? I, Gabriel, I never thought he would say that. God understands that our flesh. God knows exactly what's in our hearts. He's never taken by surprise by anything. But he turns and says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. Wow. This is the second way that Satan attacks. He slanders us before God. First he slanders God against us. Then us against him. The third conversation is found in Luke 4, 1 through 13. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Satan tried to tempt Jesus to satisfy his physical hunger, as you know. Of his body for strength rather than drawing strength from the word of God by turning the stones into bread. In Luke chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. In verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Verse 4. Jesus defeated Satan by quoting God's word, knowing God's word. Prior to this, he had been praying for 40 days and fasting. In verse 5 through 8 of chapter 4 of Luke, Satan tries to tempt Jesus to worship him by appealing to his intellectual and emotional being and his own will, rather than obedience to the word of God by offering the kingdoms of the world to him. Verse 5 says, then the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, verse 6, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore... If you will worship before me, all will be yours. Verse 7. Satan always wants to offer you a shortcut to obedience. Always. A compromise. Jesus answered and said to him in verse 8, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord Yahweh your God and him only shall you worship. Once again, Jesus rejects it, knowing the word of God and being the word of God and being full of the spirit of God. In Luke 4, 9 through 12, Satan tried to tempt Jesus, to tempt God in what he clearly knew was wrong and presumptuousness, appealing to to his spirit, desiring Jesus to cast himself from the temple. In verse 9, then he brought him to Jerusalem. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, literally it says, since you're the Son of God. It's not doubting, it's affirming he is. That's the word if. Since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Verse 10 and 11. He's quoting it out of context. Satan is good at that. He knows Scripture better than you. Out of context. And many people in the church, in great parts of the church today, with kingdom theology and positive confession and the new emergent church. Things completely out of context. A text out of context is nothing but a pretext to say what you want it to say. It's a violation and a distortion of the revelation of God. God said you shall not add or take away from my word. Or it will be added to you or taken away from the book of life. You're going to mess with anything. Don't mess with one thing. Do not mess with God's word. Leave it alone. In verse 12, Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord Yahweh your God. Here you have the three ways, through these three conversations, that Satan attacks us. Always. Always. These are the very words of Satan. Nowhere else will we have words of Satan to quote them. They're very important to us. And as we study them, we learn his methods and the things that he does to attack us. Absalom, you remember, could not resist the temptation of Satan. So he stole the hearts of the people by his words. Remember when David brought him back to the kingdom? And you go to the gate where all the judgments were made and is oh if I were king I would just settle every everybody's you know complaints and difficulties and he would go and grab them and kiss them and give them a kiss. He stole the hearts of the people. Wow. The devil in his three conversations teach us one simple lesson. Do not talk to the devil. you'll know by what he tells you. It's always unbiblical. It's always half-truths. It's always contorted and distorted. Second, the devil in this threefold attack. The devil will tempt every man and woman in three basic areas. This is found in 1 John 2.16. The lust of the flesh is from within, that sinful nature that attempts to pervert and to distort my physical drives of my body. The lust of the flesh, it's all around us. There is nothing wrong with our physical bodies in and of themselves. The sin comes through our sin nature and through the process of desires to obtain In the process, what is not one's own wife or husband before or after marriage, the lust of the flesh. It's ever-present. Our whole world revolves around it. Our whole world just flaunts it. Our whole world now has come to a place where they don't see anything wrong with any of this. It's just part of the next evolutionary stage because man is evolving. The latest philosophy in the colleges and university is that we are not born male and female but we are de- we determine that by our evolutionary process in this journey of life. Wow, sounds smart, doesn't it? Not really. The lust of the eye is from without. That's the next one. That steers up my emotions and desires to obtain what I see the soul. The lust of the eye cultivates the longing of the intellect which get me emotionally involved and weakens my will to surrender to do wrong. The woman is more susceptible and often the easiest to be deceived in sexual relationships prior to marriage because she's moved by what she feels. She makes decisions by emotions and circumstances because we are two different beings. Men are moved by what they see. Women are moved by what they feel. Man says, I'm hungry. A woman says, I am starving. Man says, I'm cold. She says, I'm freezing. And once a month, ladies... You are high and you are low. We're two different individuals. By creation, purposely. But when you add the fall, the sin nature in us, man, you've got big problems, big challenges that can only be met with the power of God's Spirit and His Word. No other way. The pride of life is from within. That arrogant attitude to be self-sufficient, boastful, self-willed, and self-centered in my spirit. The body's physical. The soul is my intellect, emotion, and will. The spirit is the real me. One of these days, if the Lord tarries, I'm going to give my last breath. This physical body... It's going to be barbecued. If I was buried, they'd put it back in the ground. Cremation will do in 36 minutes what 36 years will do to my body in the ground. That's all it does. But my soul goes with God. My spirit goes with God. The real me is spirit. He's given me this body to communicate and to manifest my actions. But the real me is spirit, and God has created another abode for me. He's going to glorify this body. The minute I die, I'm instantly present before the Lord. I'm never found naked. What am I in? I don't know. But the body is glorified at the coming of Jesus for the church. That's when the bodies are raised. First Thessalonians four sixteen through seventeen is very, very, very clear on that. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain the second coming shall be caught up, possible. To the clouds and be with the Lord and our loved ones forevermore. So as we 're raptured up, our body is transformed. The dead bodies are raised first, and they are joined with their spirits in heaven as we go up. One resurrection, the first resurrection there. Now, pride led Lucifer to rebel and be corrupted, and he led one third of the angels that we saw this morning. Pride goes before destruction, the haughty spirit before the fall, as Proverbs 16 18 says. The pride of man, always, it's innate with the fall. It's what drives people, it's what causes people to sometimes do things that they would not normally do. They just can't handle the humiliation, the confrontation, or whatever it may be. And they are pushed to a limit to do something they normally would not do. The pride of man. The devil tempted Adam and Eve in the very same way that these three, in First John says, the "lust the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life." The woman saw that the tree was good for food, appealing to the body senses in Genesis 3:6. The fruit was pleasant to the eyes, the appeal to the soul, our emotions, also in 3:6. And the tree desirable to make one wise, the appeal to the spirit to be as God. Also in three six. All three areas. There is never a temptation that Satan will bring to you that will not come from one of these three windows. The devil will... Tempt Jesus and did tempt Jesus in these very same areas because Jesus is just like the first Adam except without sin. And Jesus was tempted by the devil to demonstrate he would not fail so that he would demonstrate to you and I that we can be overcomers of the same testings because he did not fail. And therefore, he did that trusting the word, prayer, and fill of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus never defeated Satan in the wilderness because he was God. He was tempted as a man in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin, the book of Hebrews says. Very important. Okay? So that we have no excuse. We cannot say, I cannot. A Christian can only say, I will not. Are we clear on that? Okay? If you're a Christian, you're all mine. You're a non-believer, I'll evangelize you. I'll tell you, you need to be saved. But once you're saved, you do not receive an inferior salvation. Your salvation is like the one that Peter received, Paul received, Solomon, and all of us, okay? No inferior salvation. Now, the devil, again, there with Jesus. Jesus was tempted regarding the body when Satan told him to turn the stones into bread in Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. And Jesus was tempted regarding the soul when Satan offered him the kingdoms, their power and glory in Luke 4, 5 through 8. The intellect, the emotion, the will. Jesus was tempted regarding the spirit when Satan solicited him to cast himself off the pinnacle of the temple to tempt the Lord in Luke 4, 9 through 12. All three same areas. Jesus was tempted in every area, every level of temptation that man will ever be tempted. Once again I said without sin Hebrews 4:15. So that means that Jesus knows what you go through when you are tested in your finances. Jesus didn't have any money to pay taxes. He told Peter go down to the lake and get a coin out of the fish's mouth. You don't have a house, you rent. Jesus says, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You ever die? Experienced death? Jesus did. There is no testing that you and I will ever go through or temptation that Jesus did not go through. Either we have to believe what the scripture says or we have to say that God's a liar. You can't have them both. It's one of the two. That means Jesus experienced the full impact of the power of evil in every kind of temptation which no man will ever experience. You know why? Because we ultimately give in. He never gave in. You and I will never experience the full force of evil against us because sooner or later we give in. For you to experience the full force against you, you must resist it to the end. He never gave in to anything. Wow. Not only did Jesus resist in these three areas, but Luke tells us that he was being tempted for 40 days. Then the three major ones came in Luke 4 two. Adam and Eve had only one temptation in Genesis 3. Mark says Jesus was with the wild beast in Mark 1.13. Adam and Eve were in the garden with tame animals. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in Matthew 4.2 and in Luke 4.2. Adam and Eve did not. Satan departed for a season till a better opportunity, Luke 4.13 says. And that was the case with Adam and Eve thereafter because they chose to sin. You remember David in his ongoing willful disobedience to all the checkpoints that God gave him with Bathsheba. He moved step by step to finally commit adultery which led to murder. Presenting himself as his glorious king benevolent compassionate caring for his people. Wow. I'm sure that David didn't even consider what would happen that day as he stepped out on his balcony. Being the king, his house is high, the highest. He's looking down. If you've been with us to Jerusalem, right there in the old city of David, Ophel, we're looking down. We go through the water tunnels there. You're looking down. It's, if you're, you guys are looking this way. So if you're looking at the temple, Ophel would be on your left hand side at the bottom. And then, as the kingdom of David passed over to Solomon, they they moved the city upward, and then the temple was built on the top. But David's city was down here at the bottom. Okay, right by the uh, by the Kidron Valley, and that, and so David is looking out and he sees this woman, and that wouldn't be um, a, a, an awkward thing because it would happen as he's on top. But that was the first check. Should have walked in and gone and played hopscotch or something, but he didn't, and he kept thinking. Then he started plotting. And he started rationalizing. Then he asked questions to his man. Who is it? And it was the grandfather of Bathsheba says, She is the wife of Uriah. He ignored that check. No one ever falls without being checked by God many, many, many times. But once we cross a certain line, you don't hear no bells. You don't hear no whistles. You just hear you. Gotta have a woman. Gotta have a woman. Or whatever it is that you're after. David ignored all those checks. The devil in his three-fold attack teaches us one more simple lesson. Don't be ignorant to the three areas of attack. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. Third, we have the devil and the three keys to spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.12. The war is intense hand-to-hand combat. Listen to it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, the lower atmosphere of our stratosphere here. Angels, I said this morning, are here and they're here tonight. Good angels, bad angels, there's warfare going on. If you don't know Jesus Christ, angels are here to hinder you from believing the gospel. believing what you're hearing. Try to distort, minimize the importance of your decision for eternity based on Jesus Christ, what he did for you. Spiritual warfare is not against flesh and blood, though Satan will use flesh and blood to attack us spiritually. The word wrestle means wrestling, a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other to the ground. And to decide the victory, you have to hold the man down, the opponent, and hold him by the neck. In Greek wrestling, the loser had his eyes gouged out. What does Satan do? He blinds you lest the light of the gospel come upon you. But sin blinds us also and brings destruction. Paul put it this way, whose mind the God of this age, Satan, has blinded, who uh, do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Second Corinthians 4.4 4. Six times the word against appears in ephesians six eleven through twelve against its constant opposition, Paul fought the good fight of faith, he kept the faith he says in second Timothy four seven he exited triumphantly i finished my course, my race these forces. Vary in rank and authority, the subdivisions in both good and bad angels here in Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, and the evil ones in chapter 6, verse 12. Principalities, which means first ones, preeminent ones, leaders. Um, powers means authorities and spirit demons of Satan in the lower atmosphere that make up his kingdom. And rulers of darkness refers to the world rulers Of darkness and wicked spirits to the spirit force of perniciousness, we might look at these as privates, corporals, lance corporals, sergeants, staff sergeants, sergeant majors, etc. Different ranks. One third of the angels in heaven fell with him. The warfare in Ephesians has a strategy. In Ephesians 6, 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This is the second principle. It's important. The strategy. To defeat the believer in the spiritual warfare is always his purpose. Always. We need to be strong in the power of Of his might, the might of Jesus Christ, not our own. Again, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to put on the whole armor of God. And as I've said often, husbands and wives get back to back. There's no armor in the back. So you're surrounded. And the first ones you have to protect yourself from, mom and dad, is your children. Because they will try to divide you. Family members will try to divide you. You get back to back so that everybody knows that you are one and you will not be divided. You have disagreements, you have things that you don't uh, see eye to eye, then you discuss those and you pray about them and you resolve it together. So when you stand before your children and others, you stand as one. Never divided. Real simple. So to defeat the believer in spiritual warfare, but also to deceive the believer. That's his goal. Satan has wiles, which means cunning arts, deceit, craft, and treachery. The word comes from the verb to follow up or investigate by method and settle plans to cause us to fall rather than to stand. He says, stand and done everything, end up standing. A soldier needs to end up standing, not be knocked down. Satan has his methods or stratagems to seek out our most vulnerable area. Satan and his angels can transform themselves into angels of light, as you know. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14 through 15. We should not be ignorant about this. Once again, how do you know who's talking to you? Do you know God's word? Do you know it in context? Very important. But also to enslave the believer, to keep us in fear, doubt, discouragement, and depression. A lot of people don't put on the mind of Christ, so then they listen to Satan's counsel. It sounds so compassionate at times. Oh, you know, you really don't deserve this. You know, you you know you you're so faithful, this and that, and it's just not right, and you're going, yeah. That's one of the problems with our nation today. We've got a bunch of crybabies in our nation. Everybody loves the nanny state to be protected. Let me tell you, when I grew up, you shoot your mouth up, you get your clock clean. And that prepared you for life. Real simple. Real simple. He has these methods and stratagems to seek out our most vulnerable area, ladies and gentlemen. He wants to enslave you, to keep you angry, resentful, bitter, not forgiving, whatever. Thinking on the past. We're not to be ignorant of the vices in order to, he not take advantage of us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11. Six times the word against. I repeat, appears in Ephesians in view of the constant opposition in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. Against, 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 against. He comes as an angel of light, not as a hideous creature from hell with horns. He doesn't come with red PJs. Third principle, the warfare can be resisted and overcome. Once again, Jesus resisted and overcame Satan in the wilderness, applying the same advice James gives to us in James 4, 7. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw not to God, and he will draw nigh to you. So Ephesians says... Give no place, literally a foothold to the devil, Ephesians 4, 7. So James gives us good counsel. You can't just resist the devil and not not draw an eye to God. You can't just draw an eye to God and not resist the devil. You got to do both. And you cannot give him a foothold. You close that door when he starts speaking, when he starts bringing things up. wants to remember, to point you back to whatever. Jesus has provided us with the necessary weapons. They are spiritual weapons, not carnal. Second Corinthians 10:4 through five. The armor of God that we've mentioned in Ephesians 6:10 through 18. By the way, it ends with prayer. These are the same that Jesus used: the Holy Spirit, prayer and the word. Examine Luke 4:1 through13. For us, Ephesians 6, 10, and 18. Same thing. Jesus promised he would never allow us to be tempted more than we are able, but with every tempting or testing, show us a way of escape in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So I hate that verse. And I love that verse. I love that verse because I know that I have great hope in Christ Jesus, that whatever he allows I can be victorious. I hate it because when I don't depend on the Lord, I always fail. And I've got no excuse. No justification. He is a merciful high priest able to give us grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says. So we're to come to him as often as we need to. Judas Iscariot was not destroyed by Satan. He was destroyed by exercising his own free will and not resisting Satan. He chose to betray the Son of Man by his own free will. The wisdom is to have the Lord between you and the devil, Jude 8 and 9 says. Don't think that you're so spiritual you can deal with. I don't think I've ever dealt with Satan. He, cannot, he can only deal with one person at a time. He's not present at all time, every place. And I'm sure that he has a lot bigger business with people more influential. There are church and Christian traditions that are not found in the Bible. Sometimes I'll just mention a few. Um, Such as, I bind you, Satan, the phrase is never found in the scriptures, never commanded to do so. And yet we hear it all the time by extreme Pentecostal. By the way, we are Pentecostal. That means that we believe in the gifts. We just believe that to be practiced, decent, and in order. Okay? But they're present for today. All of them. But the formula, I bind you, Satan, and you sometimes hear it with an emphasis on the voice. I bind you, Satan. Or loud, like if he just said in a certain tone or loud enough I was saying, and he just walks away. Um, the term means really to allow and disallow. And it's found only about three times. Once, where Jesus gives to Peter the keys and whatever you bind on earth, you'll be bound. Okay? It means whatever you allow and disallow, but it's based on the Word of God. What's scriptural? The second is in Matthew 18, for church discipline. Whatever we agree scripturally, then that's what it should be. And the third one is when Jesus told the disciples that you can preach the gospel, and whoever sins you remit, they remit whoever sins are retained, they're retained. That means that they are allowed. If someone repents, you can say your sins are gone. If they don't repent, say your sins retained. That's all it that means. But nowhere is it ever found or commanded. When Satan comes to you, you say this and you say it loud and you say with a as if Do I believe that Jesus is more powerful than Satan? Absolutely. But like Jude, I keep Satan between, or the Lord between me and Satan. The Lord rebuke you. I don't think I am more powerful than Satan. Trust me. I don't want to see him. I don't want to hear him. I don't want to talk about him. Only when I come to Scripture... There are other formulas and pleadings that go by, like the blood of Jesus whenever something happens. Yet the blood of Jesus is very powerful. It forgives us of our sins. It makes you whiter than snow. It has the power and the authority and the capacity to forgive every one of your sins and to present you faultless before Jesus Christ. Wow. But that I plead the blood of Jesus over Satan or something like that. Once again, the formula is never found like that in Scripture. These are all church traditions by extreme Pentecostals. Just like deliverance ministries are very popular today because they say demons can possess Christians or oppress them. And they, you have to deliver them. And so, you know, you cough up some whatever and there's the demon. It's all a bunch of junk. Carnality, all right? Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And so, um, we want to understand what the scripture says about the authority we have and how we're to use it. And the power in the blood of Jesus. And not to twist it and contort it and teach something that's totally contrary to the scriptures. The war is spiritual and there is an ongoing battle in the angelic world that goes on constantly. Angels are ministering spirits to the earth of salvation, Hebrews 1.14 says. Angels are used by God to do many things, to protect man, to aid man. We see that in Daniel 5 and many times in the Old Testament as well as in the book of Acts. Angels are used for judgment. In Genesis 19, the angels went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. There are two worlds existing side by side in the very midst of us. God and his angels, Satan and his angels, the spirit world and man's, the physical world that we live in. They're both together. The spiritual world is very conscious of us and sees us while we feel Physical man is often so ignorant about the spiritual world and certainly unable to see the angelic beings unless God would open our eyes like he did to the servant of Elisha. And so that's why it's important that we believe God's word, we study God's word, and we apply God's word and live out God's word. Because the power is in God's word, not in us. One day the chicken had a conversation with the pig in the farmyard how they might help the farmer with breakfast. The chicken proceeded to say that she would provide the farmer with some eggs. The pig was silent for a while and the chicken asked him if there was a problem. He said, well, in your providing the eggs, you are involved. But in providing the bacon, I'm committed. <laughs> are you committed to the spiritual warfare? If you are, then you will never think you are sufficient in yourself, but keep the Lord between you and Satan. Like Zachariah says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Zachariah 3.2. the devil and his three keys to spiritual warfare teaches us a final lesson. Don't forget the warfare is spiritual. Absolutely spiritual. But it affects us on the physical, on the emotional, and on the spiritual. And so, This is how Satan is revealed in the scriptures regarding his attacks by these three important things. The devil and the three conversations don't talk to him. The devil and his three full attack don't be ignorant to the three areas of attack. And the devil and the three keys to spiritual warfare don't forget the warfare is spiritual. Put the armor, be filled with the power of his mind. Husbands and wives, get back to back. Singles, God has your back. And do good warfare. It's a winnable, winnable warfare. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. We love you. We thank you for tonight. We pray you continue to just deal with our hearts. And, Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your spirit that makes it understandable, Lord, and more than that, very significant to our lives, knowing that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Lord. As you're praying, if, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. The same goes for you. Satan would love you to remain lost. Satan would love you to charge God or to believe there is no God or to believe that God doesn't love you. Yet the Bible says he loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you. He became sin for you. And if you believe that, then you can call in his name and be saved. It's called a prayer of repentance. So if you're here... On the floor, the balcony, or over the internet. This is your prayer to him if you want to be born again. Your prayer of repentance. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.